Hello and welcome to Weird Together, that show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror films. I'm Brennan Storr, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Kamau, host of The Cardinal Rule. And we're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, how you doing? I'm actually doing really good. You know, another part of my world in life is sports. That's kind of what I do for my other YouTube thing. And Mm -hmm. tomorrow is my sports Christmas. My favorite event of the year in sports is the NFL draft. So today is Christmas Eve from a sports level for me. So, you know, for again, for maybe horror fans, uh, that might not resonate. But for me, I'm in very good spirits because tomorrow I get to begin a three-day uh, excursion into the depths of sports nerddom. So, Bren, how are you? That's fabulous, my friend. I'm good. I, I, I just came in the door minutes ago, as you know, uh, panting because I had to get across town from the Doug Stanhope show at La Nationale. So I, I went from, from stand-up comedy uh, immediately onto it. Literally, I had to actually leave the show in progress uh, across the street, down a million flights of stairs to the metro. And I just had these nightmare visions that the train was going to, you know, because the trains in Montreal, they'll stop for no reason. I say it for no reason. They announce it in French, but that may as well be no reason. And uh, you could just be sitting there for 100 years. And it's about a 45-minute walk, and I'm not real fast. So, <laughs> yeah, thankfully, the, the uh, what do you call it, the public transit cooperated. But it was, there was a moment where I was a little bit like, mm, shit, this could be, uh, can I do this from my phone? And I was asking myself. So what you're saying is if the trains weren't running, neither was Brent. Correct. Yep. <laughs> be doing this from far, far underground. Thankfully, <laughs> we did not have to do that because I'm going to spend enough time down there eventually. Well, I'm glad you made it. Uh, let's say hey to, uh, we have someone in the chat, Rin already, Rin Lemieux. Thanks for being here. Good evening, gentlemen. We appreciate you and your continued support. If anyone else is hanging out with us, throw a throw a, a hello in the chat, and we'll definitely get you up there on the screen there. Thank you very much, Rin. Yes, hello, Rin. Of course, my, my good friend, Rin. So, Joseph, we are here today to talk about a film which I was wholly unaware of until about 10 days ago. Hmm. And that film is Unwelcome. And Unwelcome tells the story of a city couple who moves to Ireland to his ancestral home and... Well, they run into trouble with both the natural world and the world of man. And it really goes places I think you would not expect, especially based on the cover art, which I, I think is terrible. But, of course, we will talk about all that in, well, later in the show. But before we can talk about Unwelcome, as we say with any film, you don't go into a movie blind. You, don't, you never go in totally clean. With every movie you watch, there's baggage. <laughs> All right, Joseph, what, if any, baggage did you have going into Unwelcome? Well, you know, I wasn't familiar with the film, um, but I do enjoy films that are set in Ireland and that are films that are based in Irish lore. Going back to when I was a child, you know, I forget the film. It's it's a well-known film that had banshees as a key kind of, uh, you know, antagonist. And, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the, I just always enjoyed that kind of a thing. So I, I liked that right from the beginning. And something I didn't realize going in, but ultimately was baggage for me, is, you know, as a person who has a family, you know, married with children, some of the scenes with violence and fears of violence and protecting your family ended up uh, certainly striking a note because of that aspect of, you know, my my identity and experience. We'll talk about that a little bit more later because there's some interesting points about that I want to get into. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very curious to hear your perspective on this. 
Uh, as for me, I went in more or less blind. I was not familiar with a filmmaker, although I have since watched uh, one of his films, which we'll talk about in the Toctagon. And I, I, the cover art I thought was terrible. I, I, uh, I, this was one of my random picks. You know, I was flipping through What's New on Google Play, just renting things at random. And, uh, you know, we, we, as we discussed on the episode that just came out, Freeze, uh, which you can find if you look for Weird Together on, the, uh, on your podcast platform of choice. We did that episode because we were going to watch this. We watched this other movie and we just could not bring ourselves to talk about it. It was, it was too painful. Uh, well, we tried talking about it, and the episode was a car crash. So <laughs> we we pivoted, and so we had to kind of do two different movies very quickly cl- close together. So I just grabbed Unwelcome, watched it, and thought, oh, no, this is, this is actually great. It's a great choice. Uh, I, too, am a fan of Irish horror films, the stuff like Devil's Doorway, A Dark Song. I know uh, Irish director Lee Cronin just had a massive hit with Evil Dead Rise, which is a crazy intense movie. Uh, I watched that night before last. Uh, don't order food before watching that movie. That was a mistake I made. I got myself some nachos, and then people started getting ripped apart, and I didn't want my nachos anymore. That's fair. Real quick, Derek uh, is here with us, Street Right. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us, Derek. Hey, Derek, good to see you. I will be back in, on your side of the country in about 35 days, thereabouts, something like that. I'll be back in Victoria, leaving behind my beloved Montreal, because apparently two rents are expensive, Joseph. This is what I've learned. <laughs> Good to and know. also, I miss my wife. Mostly, I miss my wife. But yeah, yeah of course, of course. Got to pretend like it's a money thing, because otherwise, I'm going to seem like a big softy. Right, right. All right. Well, we're going to talk about unwelcome, and there's only one place two men such as us can do this, Joseph, and that's a octagon. Welcome to the octagon. Two men enter. Two men leave. All right, my friend. So I missed that sting. I I have also missed that sting. It's not the same when I added in afterwards to the uh, like the audio shows. It does it does lack a little something. <laughs> so I'm really curious to know what you thought of Unwelcome. Well, overall, I liked the film a lot. Um, I, I think a lot of the reviews and ratings kind of gave it sort of a sort of a two out of four stars, three out of five stars, and it's probably somewhere in that range in, in my book too. Maybe a you know six out of ten, seven out of ten. Uh, but overall, I really enjoyed it a lot for some of the reasons we talked about. Um, I thought the acting, the cinematography, the locations were all really good, uh, really solid. And, you know, some of that, I think, is maybe we're so used to looking at independent films. And this is, you know, a small <laughs> budget. Right. This is a small budget film, but it's not but it's out of a ma- major, you know, uh, studio. So um, that certainly it had a little more going for it in terms of resources. Um, but, yeah, overall, I liked it. There were a few things that we'll, we'll get into later that maybe weren't my favorite. But overall, I, I found myself enjoying the film pretty much all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. I, one thing we didn't that I didn't get to in the plot summary is that of course, this couple, you know, they, they suffer this this terrible, uh, terrible assault, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. They move to Ireland and they discover that Jamie, the, the fella, his aunt has left them the house. But every day she was she left uh, an offering of liver at the back garden because she believed in the old ways. She believed that the far Derrick which are a kind of little people, which we will not be joking about on this show. Mm. <laughs> uh, just make that clear. Uh, that, that they had to be sated. They had to be fed. They had to have an offering, a blood offering given to them. And 
I like movies that explore folklore as if it's a basically the place where real life, I shouldn't say real life and folklore, but where kind of the world of technology and the world of folklore intersect. So in the film, when, when the Farderic finally do turn up, it, it's this great marriage of just total disbelief and folklore craziness. And I, I really thought that was cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you kind of alluded to this. I was curious what you thought of it, because I know that you have a, a profound respect for the yes. fair folk. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, so when, it, when, you know, in the film, when an old Irish woman tells you to respect the old ways you listen, um, the old man saying fuck the fairies as he was, you know, kind of walking home drunk was probably not wise. Uh, but yeah, I, I, now, for folks who might not be familiar with this, do you feel comfortable speaking a little bit about why you have such reverence for the fair folk? So I, most of the folks who, who watch the show or who will listen to it afterwards, they probably, they probably know the ghost story guys. Uh, if you don't, uh, hello. Uh, ghost story guys is a show I co-host with Paul Bestel and we have been doing it for six years now for almost two and a half with Paul. And we tell true life stories of the paranormal. And there was a time when I didn't take this stuff very seriously at all. And we did an episode on the fair folk. It was pretty glib. And now, of course, the stout rationalists out there are going to say, well, what, something happened? Well, a lot of little stuff happened. Would it have happened anyways? Maybe. But it happened after I said those dumb things. And consequently, I felt like this is a sign. And then I want to say a couple of years later, we did an episode about Ireland. Uh, episode 80, I think it was. And I kind of forgot myself and said some dumb things again. And consequently, we had a bunch of things go bad again. And so I just learned to be very respectful. And uh, yeah. And so now I'm very cautious and very, I'm just, yeah, respectful is the word when discussing these, these topics. And so I did have some hesitation, but ultimately I thought, no, no, that's fine. We're not, you know, we're talking about movies. We're not talking about, you know, the reality or otherwise of, of certain things. But um, yeah. And, and it's funny too, because I, I think the film in a lot of, the director is uh, John Wright who's uh, originally Irish, now living in England, he has said the film was meant to be about an exploration of violence and, mm. you know, how, how you approach violence and what happens if you try to avoid violence. You know, if you try to run away from conflict constantly, eventually it, it you know, it can just find you. And if that's something that happens in the film, because as the film opens, Jamie and I, her, I'm blanking on her name, Maya, Jamie and Maya are very, you know, like urbane, upper class, uh, you know, digital nomad type people living in a flat in London and in a reasonably, reasonably nice flat in a reasonably nice building. And then they are attacked by these thugs, basically, who harass Jamie. And shortly after they find out she is pregnant, Jamie goes to get a bottle of, of uh, you know, non-alcoholic champagne to celebrate. He tells these guys off because they're talking shit to him and they sneak into the apartment and they just beat the bejesus out of both him and Maya. And it, it's a really hard scene to watch. Like I, I, I actually had to kind of fast forward through it when I watched the film a second time. Cause it's, it's, it, there are some funny bits in the film definitely, but that scene is, is not played for laughs and it, it, it is, uh, it is rough. And that transforms both the, the relationship, but also Jamie, because Jamie seems increasingly separated from from his masculinity. He's trying really, he's just this, he becomes this fountain of repressed rage and it affects how he functions throughout the rest of the film. 
Yeah, and you know, and that that's kind of the thing that I I alluded to in the baggage in terms of, you know, there there is this sort of primal fear, this sort of on a long-standing evolutionary fear, fear I think in terms of our psychology, um, you know, a, as a father and a husband, um, you know, the 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 responsibility I feel to keep my family safe, right? And how how you do that? There's a lot of ways you do that in our contemporary society. You do that by having, you know, a, a career and buying a house that has doors that lock, you know, Uh-oh. and things like that. I'm, I'm in trouble, Joseph. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, society has largely kind of put most of us in a place where we kind of don't have to deal with those, those types of violence, except for very rare occasions, you know, that, that, are, that are really sad and tragic and unfortunate. But, like, there were elements of the film where, where you, you see that helplessness in those moments, both with the sort of the, the, the guys hanging out on the curb, you know, the, the, whatever you want to call them in the urban setting. and then you know, the Wayland family and, and, you know, the, the being in the house and kind of encroaching and kind of having their way and, you know, just sort of that almost being the fear of being dominated in a weird way. And, and someone kind of, you know, hurting someone you care about and your children and, and the person you love. And um, just all of that, those moments definitely hit that note and, you know, definitely kind of hit on that fear. And that's one of those things that kind of coming into this film, I didn't realize would be something I would uh, that would kind of resonate might not be the right word, but because it certainly wasn't in a positive way, but certainly that kind of impacted my experience watching the film. Yeah, no, I wasn't expecting that either. I I wasn't sure what to expect because I didn't know much about the film. Uh, But that scene, as I said before, that really hit home for me. And and Mm -hmm. I think there is a a rich, a rich tradition uh, in, especially in modern English cinema of this fear of street crime mm-hmm. and, you know, the sort of these hoodlums or hoodies as an other, you know, it, the, this, that scene specifically reminded me of, I think it's Kieran Foy, the director. He directed a film called Citadel, mm-hmm. which is about uh, people living in a, in a building, which is essentially besieged by these thugs. But in that film, they're almost this sort of uh, amorphous mob. You know, they don't have a, a, a unique identity. They're just sort of a, like a, like a, a single force working together. And it, it just, yeah, it's, it's that, that sort of, uh, what do you call it? Like urban fear, basically. Like, like the, uh, in the 80s, that was a big thing. This idea that cities were becoming unmanageable hellscapes. Uh, and, you know, it was 70s too. I mean, obviously, it's like Death Wish. That's kind of where films like that were born. But, he, but in the, even in the 80s, films like uh, John McTiernan's Nomads with Pierce Brosnan is this really interesting. I mean, it, it's a horror film, but it's a really fascinating look at the urban paranoia of the time. And again, in modern times, as crime in England has gotten worse, this has become really rich ground. And again, I just thought that he nailed the film. And, and actually, it's sort of interesting because um, you mentioned the cinematography. The, another artist this film reminded me of was Johannes Roberts, or Johannes Roberts, the director, who is English, but he's, he shot at least one film in Ireland. He did a film about a giant eagle or a giant bird. I can't remember the name of it right now. But... Um, he is a horror director who just has this incredible visual sense. And there was something I really enjoyed in the one of the opening shots where it starts out above their flat mm. and sort of tracks down and it frames all the people in these windows working in these offices about, you know, in this, in this block, but it, it frames them individually. Like they're all separated from each other and it just makes this, this very expensive building look like a prison. Yeah. 
And I love that because it's so reflective of where those two start their lives. And, and even after Jamie and Maya go to Ireland, this is where I think sort of the colonizer subtext becomes comes into play because they continue, they try to continue their walled off sub, like urban way of life mm. in a place where that is not how anyone lives. And they get angry when no one else will sort of respect those boundaries because they don't understand that's not how people he live here. And they don't understand that by trying to impose that they are othering themselves. Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, with, you know, you had Maeve, right? The, the, uh, I guess the friend of the the family who, you know, kind of Neve. was the person that I'm sorry, Neve, Meve, I'm sorry, uh, Meve. And, uh, she's kind of the first person they, they encounter there. Uh, and she's very kind and, and she says, Hey, there's this thing <laughs> that needs to be done and I'm happy to take care of it for you. And they're immediately very off put by the idea that she would be on their property on a daily basis. And so there's certainly that note. And then, uh, you know, when the Whalen family's sort of making themselves at home a little too comfortable and, and uh, you know, they, when they try to kind of put their foot down, Jamie in particular, they kind of invoke sort of the, the old grudges, the old scars of, you know, the, the British coming to Ireland. They kind of invoke that history in their kind of, resentment there so a lot of interesting kind of juxtaposition of of those two cultures right there what i thought was particularly unique about that was that both sides are right and both sides are wrong mm -hmm. in, in that argument because obviously jamie and maya yeah they're well-to-do people from who obviously can work from anywhere with their jobs they've been given this house in ireland he's technically a quarter Irish, so they kind of belong there but, you know, they're going to live in this house and contribute to it and they'll spend money in the local economy. And so, you know, they're a net positive, but also they refuse to conform in any way to the way that everyone else around them lives. So they're assholes. <laughs> and the Whelans, who are the people that Jamie hires to work on their roof, despite kind of being told, eh, they're not great. They are, yeah, they're Irish and they don't like the fact that English people are coming to live in their, in their country and so on and so forth. But they're also assholes because they're lazy thieves. And I thought that uh, John Wright and the writer, I cannot remember his name, Mark something. It's gone right out of my head. Mm. But I thought they had this really keen sense of this, this very particular kind of person who they, they use heritage as a way to kind of shore up their otherwise completely empty character. You know, I, I've mm -hmm. seen people do this in Canada. You know, they'll say, well, you know, I'm a Canadian and we do this and this is how we live. and my grandfather fought in the war. Yeah, but what, what does that have to do with it? You did, you've done fuck all. <laughs> right. You know, you work at the sawmill, you shoot at beer cans. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> do what you're going to do, but don't think this gives you some kind of moral high ground. And that's mm -hmm. those, the characters of the, the Whelan family. They're such shits, but they, they use like Michael Collins. They make a joke about, oh, he's Michael Collins himself when Jamie tries to claim some kind of Irish. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, like, do they really give a shit? No, this is just a way to continue to other these people because their net yeah. contri contribution to the society. <laughs> like later when the one Whelan boy is accused of theft and he just loses his mind, but he did steal from Jamie. We see him. He's, he has stolen several times from these invaded their privacy. He leaves a turd in their toilet. You know, he, he's, he's just garbage, but being cold garbage. Oh no, he flies off and handle. We, and we've all met that guy, the mm -hmm. guy who's a lazy lousy bastard who if you call him on any of his shit all of a sudden he is yeah he's a folk hero in his own head 
and uh, everyone else just really wishes he'd get struck by lightning. Yeah, uh, the name you were looking for, I believe, is Mark Stay, the writer. Perfect. Thank you very much. Yeah, Mark Stay, yeah. the writer. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's absolutely a really insightful look at that. You know, um, there, there are kind of, you know, both sides have have a nugget of truth, kind of a point, but both are also kind of off uh you know i I, maybe i'm sympathize you know more with the protagonists uh jamie and my in terms of they're a little less shitty than than 100 yeah but yeah not conforming though yeah they are more sinned against than sinning absolutely yeah um but but again i I think they're they're meant to be an example of that sort of english colonial rule because Mm -hmm. they come to this place and again neve tells them you got to do this thing and the Mm -hmm. first thing that Maya does is just just shit all over it. Yeah, she just like condescends to this woman, like mm-hmm. she's talking to a, a not very clever child, and yeah. it, it's just that. And and that's I mean that's the call, the story of the colonizer, right? Like you have gods, you you pray. You're the there are spirits in these woods. Give me a fucking break. We're gonna put a jamba juice over there. You know that's just kind of <laughs> what they do. I thought Meve's response was kind of interesting because she had this smile that was this big smile. But behind it was this something, something else. And it almost, it felt like, you know how people who are used to dealing with colonizers or ethnocentric pieces of shit or whatever, any, you know, people who are used to dealing with condescending assholes, just know how to patronize them just enough to kind of give them what they want. But it's usually the person who is you know, who is being condescended against, who is usually in the know, uh, has, has the clue. And there was just something behind me smile that just like, she, she knew full well what was going on in this dynamic. She knew who this couple was. She knew what they were about and she knew how she had to kind of defer to them just enough to try to get them to do what she wanted them to do. But when, when they didn't, she laid into it, right? She pulled her aside. It's like, this is important. So, so there was some, there was interesting dynamic and the actor who played me, I think did an outstanding role, probably one of my favorite performances kind of subtly in the film is how she played that character. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because I, that's, that's such a, a common thing. We think if someone, if someone believes these things, I can't tell you the number of people who've talked to me, like I'm stupid because mm-hmm. I do a show about ghosts, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it's, it's always very subtle. Well, okay. Not mm-hmm. always. Sometimes it's not subtle at all. But, you know, there's this very much like, oh, you, you believe in these things, hey? Mm, okay. <laughs> bless your heart. Ble- yeah, bless your heart, right? Oh, well, is the spirit in the room with us right now? Like, get the fuck out of here. I'm not a psychic. I tell stories, man. <laughs> but this is a yeah. thing that, that people will do. And, and, I mean, being someone who is, uh, you know, sort of seen as, like, I'm, you know, I'm the whitest man on the planet. So I, I don't have to deal with the colonizer bullshit. I just have to deal with intellectual condescension. But having then to some other bozo who comes in like this, you believe in this, this is your culture. You know, mm. I, I believe in these things because I've seen things and I've experienced mm. things that just don't have any other explanation. But to, to come in and, you know, no, this is what we believe. This has been passed down forever. Oh, that's cute. You know, we believe in self-reliance and money and, and, and bullshit. And to just have to swallow that over and and, and again mm-hmm. watch these people get chewed up and spit out because everything that happens in the film could have been avoided if they adapted to living the way they are the people in that village live. <laughs> yeah, you know if 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 they had just waited to get the roof fixed, if mm-hmm. if if Jamie had just gotten a tarp and some fucking cinder blocks and some wood and just just covered the hole in the roof until someone could fix it, 
they would never had the Waylands on the property. They never would have had the Straw Dogs esque uh, finale. They never would have had all the the creepy bullshit that happened. Mm-hmm. And if they had just listened to Neve and mm-hmm. just kept leaving the the tribute every day, they don't even have well, to let her do it. Let her do it. Let her do it. She's willing to do it. Uh, yeah. This whole the whole film would have just been people you know, telling jokes at the pub and singing. Yeah. On an aside, I enjoyed the scene where they where they when he went when they went to the pub for the first time. They the way they set up the very awkward everyone staring at them. Yes, I'm like oh boy, you know, whatever. You know, so that was yeah. fun because it's it felt like the 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 cliche sort of oh no, everyone's staring at the new people, but they're like they're actually you know like most people are fine, lovely people who were very friendly at the pub. So I I enjoyed that that little bit there. Oh yeah, yeah, because it does that thing again where it subverts the expectation. Because again, you're mm-hmm. you're expecting a small town. Oh, they're mm-hmm. going to be really shitty and not trust the outsiders, and they're going to hate you because you're English. Like no, they they'll accept you. Yeah. But these then these guys immediately go about alienating all these people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it, the the way they behave, they they're such condescending dicks to all these people who are being nothing but kind to them. You know, this woman says, "Oh, I got a bunch of baby clothes. You have to take them. They're all yours. I insist." And the look on their face is like they're dealing with simpletons mm-hmm. because you know, that is how they come. That is how they view kindness. Oh, you must be simple, you know. And I know these people have seen some shit. They've, they've, you know, they've collectively lived through a lot. But that is what oftentimes what makes you a, a more giving person is when you've been through some shit. Oftentimes mm-hmm. people who just kind of cruised, they don't develop the empathy. And honestly, even Jamie and Maya at the beginning, you know, she, view, Maya, she views everything through the prism of her pregnancy. So, you know, Neve is telling her, well, hey, I'm just going to come into your property. I'm just going to leave the offering. It's fine. And she makes everything about her. That, no, I, I have to feel safe because of this pregnancy. I have to feel safe. And well, I mean, you're coming up with an excuse to try and control the situation. And again, that control blows up in their face. So what you just mentioned, it reminds me of something a little bit uh, sociological. Oh, um, Oh, here we go. You're going to you're going to enjoy this. Um, so the German sociologist Ferdinand Tonis uh, had these concepts. And this is this. These are older concepts. I mean, T- Tonis, uh, you know, lived in the uh, born 1855, you know, died 1936. So this is old school kind of sociology, social theory. There are these German terms, Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft. Have you ever heard of these? I've heard them, but I, I couldn't tell you okay. what they mean. So Gemeinschaft is this term that's kind of used to loosely translated to kind of community. Um, and, uh, and I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. And Gesellschaft. I'm sorry. Gesellschaft, I think, is community. One, anyway, I'm getting them a little bit mixed up. But one of them refers to uh, Gemeinschaft is community. Gesellschaft is more society. Okay. So Gemeinschaft is like that na- that nature of interaction that's more community oriented. Um sort of you know the kind of when you interact with someone and it's more uh more reciprocity more kind of uh you know someone offers to help you do something and you know as as a kindness and then uh so gazelle uh gazelle shaft is more transactional okay and he used these terms to describe to facets of society um you know and so like a smaller community like there has more of that gemeinschaft that sort of where you know hey we're going to give you these old uh kids clothes that we have we're going to we're going to help you out we're going to help one another out um 
whereas they're used to living in more of an urban setting where everything's much more transactional, right? They're used to buying everything and you hire someone to do something. And, you know, and when those things cross one another, when the expectations kind of are, are not in alignment with, with what's going on, it creates awkward situations. Like the, the, the example I always give is, Imagine if someone invited you to a nice holiday dinner right here in the U S we have Thanksgiving that we often do. If someone invited you to Thanksgiving dinner and you know, and you, at the end of dinner, you got up, got out of your wallet and said, well, oh, great. Thanks. How much do I owe you? Right. You would have offended that person. Right. And, and, and that offense is because it's a, it's a Gemeinschaft situation and you responded in a gazelle shaft sort of a way. Right. So I think what's going, part of what's going on here is they're coming from that much more transactional urban society kind of a way, and they view interactions with other community members in more a, other people in the community are people you buy things from, right, or that you pay for services. Whereas in a smaller community, it it there are certainly those businesses, but you have relationships even with the people who work at those businesses. And yes, there's the transactions, but there's also a lot of kind of kindness. And, you know, I live in a smaller community uh, than I've ever lived in before. And I've noticed kind of here, right? There's the people even who work at the local businesses are also people I'm, I'm friendly with outside of that. And it kind of creates a different dynamic. So there's a little social theory from Dr. Camo there that I think was kind of what, part of what was going on here. I, well, it's interesting you say that because my wife is English mm-hmm. and they, she does very much have that sort of Gesellschaft take on things. And there have been times because I'm from a smaller community and I'm, you know, Canadian, mm-hmm. I have had, she'll, you know, someone will do something for us and she'll say, well, I'm going to give them some money for it. And I say, no, no, you, you can't do that. That would be an insult to that person. I mean, if you, if you want to get them a little gift as a thank you, sure, you can do that, but you cannot give them money. And it, it was a while before she kind of went, oh, okay, I get it. But at first, she's just like, no, I'm just going to give him 100 bucks. Like, no, no, I, I, that is, a, again, a, that is a massive insult. This person did something nice for you. They, didn't, don't, they don't actually expect anything in return. We're just going to get him a little something as a, as a gesture. And it's never occurred to me that, that you know, that, I mean, I get mixed since there's a, there's a term for it. But watching the English characters in the film now, I, re, I realize that's probably not just a city thing, but a cultural thing as well. Rin says, oh, white people, <laughs> right? <laughs> In terms of, you know, yeah. Uh, and dominant, dominant, members of dominant groups, as we call them in sociology, often have a tendency to act that way. Interesting. Yeah, well, yeah. we certainly do. Uh, and so, Oh, so, and uh, sorry, uh, Jenny Umania says, agree, a gesture is better sometimes. Yep, 100%. And like when someone does a kindness and then you offer them money, yeah, it, it makes them feel like you see them as, you know, labor instead of and but yeah. they get something as a kindness right so it really it, it can really yeah be offensive uh rin is saying for city people there's a need to feel safe and protected in oneself small towns find safety in the community yeah uh you live in a small community you know absolutely you know you it, um knowing people and being known is is something that helps you feel safe in, in small communities that's a great point yeah I, I also i I've, i was saying this to a friend of mine the other day I've been in Montreal now for seven months, maybe a little bit more. And I've noticed that one of the things that's changed in me is I'm much more callous Mm -hmm. towards people asking for change. And I mean, obviously I grew up in a small town. You talk to everybody. Uh, And I mean, I I made friends with, I used in Victoria, I made friends with a dude who used to busk or panhandle for change down by the Harbor. I would sit down with him sometimes when he's panhandling and just shoot the shit and talk to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, But here, 
uh, after seven months of living in a full-on city, I, I, I've just noticed I've become much more callous about these things. And I was talking to my friend and my friend said, that's just a city thing. And it never occurred to me, but I guess that makes sense because you are so much more surrounded by people and their problems and their needs. You just sort of develop this thicker skin to separate yourself from it. I've, you know, before I moved here where I'm at now, I always lived in large metropolitan areas. And I think part of it is also, and I, I have a, a bit of that myself. I mean, I, I, I will give a little bit when I'm encountered by someone who asks, but I'm also a little got that little guarded bit. And you, you also, if you live in a city, larger city, you get approached very often for that. Sure. Also, yeah. You know, um, so there, there's also that element. And there's a point where it's like, well, you're, I'm going to start having to ask for money if I give money to every single time I'm asked. <laughs> uh, so, so, but, yeah. but yeah, there, there becomes some different, um, so we create different boundaries in a city in, you know, I, uh, someone who I studied under for social theory actually talked about, he did research on this or a published paper on this. Uh, and he talked about these sort of buffers that we create. Like you, like for example, in the United States, New Yorkers are, have this reputation as being unfriendly. Right. Um, and really it's, it's not that they're like unkind people, it's just culturally when you're rubbing up against so many people every day, stopping to take someone's time is actually, you know, with so many people around is kind of viewed as rude or unkind because if, you know, like here where I'm at, you walking down the street, you see someone, you go, Hey, how you doing? Because that's what you do here in the small town South. But if you say, Hey, how are you doing to people in New York city? And they got to stop to answer you. And then if everyone does that, like you've just wasted a whole lot of people's time, you know? So like, you know, it's not that people are unkind in those situations. It's just something about that proximity and interacting with lots of people and rubbing up against a lot of people figuratively and literally speaking, you just kind of have to have those sort of buffers that just to make it work. So some interesting dynamics when you think about urban versus rural life. Oh yeah. It also makes me think too, about people who get bent out of shape when celebrities won't hang out with them when they run into them in the street mm. you know they, they they run into will ferrell or someone and they, they won't give them the time of day and they again they get all buttered about it but the fact is when you've got people who come up to you constantly mm -hmm. at some point you have to draw a line because otherwise you, you you just there's nothing left of you and your time because mm -hmm. people they don't see it that way again they, they sort of they're locked into themselves well, i just want this one thing you know the homeless guy just wants five two minutes of my time 25 of my cents but so does the guy after him and the guy after him and the guy after him. And yeah, it's, uh, as you say, it's a sort of a fascinating dynamic. Because I mean, in, in my hometown, everyone knew the homeless guy. There's mm -hmm. maybe two or three of them. We all, we knew, literally knew them by name. Right. You know, oh, that's, that's Les over there. Or that's uh, Milkshake Harry was another guy or the ghost of John Lennon. Um, you know, like the, we know, I mean, we didn't always know their names. There's Mona, you know, some of them we knew their names. But yeah, you, you knew them. And, and here, you know, again, I've, I've you know, been here for seven months and I'm someone who, I mean, I've still bought the odd burger for a homeless guy, but much at a much, you know, much lower rate than I had. And I, I never took the time to get to know any of them. And I, I mean, yeah. some of that may also be COVID changes. I, I don't know, but. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Derek saying, I never realized how much, a jerk, how much of a jerk I was till I moved to a place as small as Victoria coming from growing up in the fourth largest city in the U.S. Yeah. Right, because you're from Houston, aren't you, Derek? If I remember correctly. Houston is a large, large, sprawling place. Yeah, and I think, 
I mean, there is an adjustment when you go to a smaller place because, you know, I'm in a, uh, a community of 17,000 people, which isn't tiny, tiny, but it's small compared to the Dallas-Fort Worth area and the Phoenix area and San Francisco Bay Area where I lived up until this point. So, yeah, I'm saying Houston, yes. Uh, so, yeah, some adjustments. I want to take things in a little bit different direction, um, if that's sure. right. I want to talk a little bit more about the lore, respectfully, of course, right? Uh, but uh, the Far Derek, I, I, I really enjoyed the lore in this. I, I enjoyed the, the, you know, everything leading up to it. I, I did, a, you know, just a little quick kind of recursory reading on, on, on the lore of the Far Derek. And I did think it was interesting. Um, there's sort of an Irish, they called them the Red Caps, right? Uh, which is sort of, but there's that's there's sort of an Irish variant of the red cap because the red cap is a regional sort of folklore, and what I found interesting was that the Irish Fardarig are more practical jokers than actually murderous leprechauns as they were kind of uh, presented. Whereas the English version of the red cap, the Powery, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, are the more malevolent and violent. So it was interesting that I don't know if they were intentionally kind of pulling from one or if they just said, hey, let's take these far Derek and make them murderous uh, red-capped leprechauns. Um, so do you, I don't know if you have any thoughts or experience with that lore to kind of speak to that. I, I can't speak to the lore, but I know that in interviews, uh, the director has said he they wanted to subvert the leprechaun trope. So they wanted to hmm. subvert kind of the happy little guy who, you know, the, the, the cliche leprechaun. So that, that's why they went with the particularly violent interpretation of the far Derek was to cast an opposition to how how Ireland is often depicted. Because, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, Ireland, God help us. You know, I mean, I, I, there's an Irish pub I drink in not far from my apartment here. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's more akin to, say, a traditional Irish pub that you might find uh, in some place like Temple Bar. I mean, okay, that's very touristy, but this is a pretty touristy place. Mm. But, you know, some of these places that you see Irish bars in North America, they're festooned with fucking leprechaun iconography and this very cartoonish version of what it means to be Irish. And I know Irish people hate it. You know, they are they are not fans of this shit. I, again, they, they in, especially around Dublin, they'll do it because that's what people go there for. But they're not fans of it. So, yeah, Wright has said he chose that version of the Far Derek to sort of uh, push back against those cliches and expectations of, of what what it is to be Irish and what what, it, what Irish folklore can be. Interesting. What are your thoughts on the ending? That was an interesting, interesting twist. What, what were your thoughts on that? I, you know, one of the things they talked about uh, or that Wright talked about in some of the interviews I read was that he wants to show that, to ask yourself, what links would you go to, will you go to, to defend your family and of course you know in our in our heads we always go to that ultra violent you know bro i would i would i see red and bodies will hit the floor and shit will go down but ultimately jamie's revealed to be a coward you know he he is he's just not he's not capable of that kind of conflict whereas maya she she really has to give of herself but she discovers mm -hmm. that she is capable of that so i, I thought it was pretty ballsy what do you think I mean, I liked that Maya, they kind of had Maya end up being the, you know, the 
the person who had the wherewithal, right? For lack of a better term, she was certainly the one who took action. Um, and I think that certainly subverted some of the cliche, you know, kind of idea of the, 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 the male figure saving everyone. Um, so I didn't mind that part of it, her kind of being more the, the key figure and the figure who kind of uh, took action and, you know, took care of daddy um <laughs> you know, that when a grown man tells you to fucking call him daddy and, he, and you're not doing fuck stuff no mm. absolutely not that, <laughs> right that that family That's, was a whole color guard competition of red flags whoo yes indeed um the very ending part is the part that i'm kind of uncertain what i think about with with the sort of ritual with her kind of becoming the new you know mama f- mama red cap you know yeah um and like what was going on there i mean you know i kind of get that you know the and you know spoilers if you don't haven't seen it already sorry but what are you listening to this for right if you're careful yeah, yeah, about spoilers right um so you know they they find who was essentially i guess jamie's cousin i guess it was but much yeah, older that- cousin who had been the baby who was then mama red cap in the cairn or whatever you want to call where they lived. Um, and, you know, so she, you know, she kills her and Jake Maya kills her and then, you know, and everything that happens and she gets her baby back, all, all that stuff. And then she kind of become, they start worshiping her almost and they call her, you know, mama red cap, I think. And, and then there's this weird ceremony with, you know, blood and, you know, and certainly part of the lore about red caps, the British version in particular, blood is a key thing. You know, that I think one of the things I read was one variant of the lore is that their caps are red because they're kind of covered in blood from whoever they kill. And and if they if yeah, they cap in the goes blood of their enemies. Right. And if the cap goes dry, they die. There, there's is one variant of the lore. Um, so it wasn't surprising that blood was a part of that. In fact, I was maybe um, thought it was uh, more interesting that it wasn't a bigger part of the film, although I guess the, the liver had to be bloody. That So that was part of that. Um, but like whatever's going on there where she's something weirds going on with that ceremony, almost supernatural. And she's embracing that, and Jamie's kind of embracing that. Uh, are they now going to be like? Are, are the Far Dare going to be their minions now? Are, something about that felt weird, like how gleeful they were to to partake in this really weird ceremony. What, I mean, what I, were your thoughts on that? I took it that Jamie was not happy about it. Okay, the Jamie, like he was not on board. I, I think because. Again, because it's sort of it, 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 he has had to relinquish his position as protector of the family mm-hmm. because Maya is the one who Maya is literally anointed in blood because she was able to to do what he wasn't. You know, she was able to sacrifice and and she had to she had to kill the pre you know the, the previous mother Redcap mm-hmm. in order to to get her baby back. She literally did the thing he said he would do. You know. I'll, Babe, I'll, you know, kick asses and I'll, I'll take down names. And, you know, he eventually does stand up for himself, but not to the same degree. And I think I, so I don't think he was on board. Mm. And I think like Maya's acceptance of it is her stepping into that, realizing that, you know, this has changed me and I, I am become a different person. I, I think she, you know, if you had to look down the road, I, you sort of, I, I mean, again, it, it's meant to be symbolic. The film just ends there, but 
I think this is it's not a relationship that can last because I think Jamie will always feel lesser than because yeah. she has chosen to to move into that to to, to yeah to, to become of the place to move into that that space where you you have to give blood in order to get blood and again I I don't know that he's capable of it in the same way. Uh, Rin saying all talk no trousers right? Yeah 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 that's exactly <laughs> it. I, I did now that is interesting because like this is Jamie's kind of ancestral home of sorts, right? He inherited this place. And that's I hadn't thought of it that way, but like Maya is now becoming like almost as though she is symbolically more embraced by his home than he is. So like if he already wasn't feeling somehow emasculated or whatever the hell you want to call it, right? Um, by the fact that he, you know. Uh, wasn't able to protect. And I know there's some problematic aspects of some of the hyper-masculinity kind of things in there. But, you know, if he wasn't already feeling insecure about how that all went down, here he is in what is supposed to be, hey, no, yeah, we're going to my home, right? This is this is where I'm from. And all of a sudden, she's now, you know, Mama Redcap, right? She's she's kind of <laughs> been embraced by the, the, the we people. And he's like, what the hell, right? Um, so I I, I want to kind of use that to segue to one other kind of, one of maybe the critiques of the film. Uh, you know, some of the reviews sure. I've read talked about this, and I, I I agree with this. You know that the ending was kind of tonally weird. It was to me, and it speaks. I think one of the the, the critiques I, I've read in reviews, and and, and I, again I agree with it, is that the the film was inconsistent in its tone. Um, you know, the, certainly it ventured into the psychology and aftermath of violence and the feeling of helplessness. And that was really interesting how it approached that. But then there were notes of humor, you know, points where it was, where it was kind of getting into that kind of funny thing, especially with the far Derek. You know, they, they possess almost kind of a an absurdity that was reminiscent of the gremlins to me, you know, at points in terms of how they conducted themselves. And. Mm -hmm. Then there were, but there were also points that were truly creepy before, and particularly before you start to see the Fardering, you know, like really creepy elements um, and scary elements. And it just, it felt like these tones were all present in nearly equally measure at equal measure. And I think that would have been benefited if they leaned more heavily into one of them and maybe had much more subtle notes of the others. Um, like it either needs to be gremlins or it needs to be creepy and not both or not trying to be both because then it, ends, it fails a little bit at being both. Um, and then the humor with the, the, the kind of the psychology of violence and the fear that almost offset each other and not, not in a way that was a tension release, but rather in a way that undermined each other. So, and, and then the whole ending there. So I feel like tonally that's probably its biggest uh, kind of weakness as a film that it didn't seem to stick to the right tone and it tried to blend those things into equal of measure. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that was one, one place where the film fell short. I, I think you're right. It was, it was trying to be, trying to be too yeah, trying to hit too many different levels and not tying them together like again mm -hmm. that that home invasion scene that was yeah that was rough that was mm -hmm. really rough uh and then as you say there's the wheelins are kind of goofy until they're not yeah you know again the, the, apparently they pitched it as when they were getting financing gremlins meets straw dogs mm. you know that's sort of how they uh how they did it and uh, yeah it, 
as you say, if if the Whelans had been cartoonishly shitty, then I think it would have been easier. But but I actually really hated them the first time I watched mm-hmm. it. I, I I was able to to relax into it a little more the second time. But I for some reason the Whelans really got my hackles up, and. It, yeah, the, the, as you say, the, the psychological angst of of what they had gone through and, and trying to cope with these things, it, it did clash a little bit with the the more violent shit towards the end. Yeah. Although, I mean, Gremlins, in retrospect, Gremlins is like a much darker movie than you might remember. I don't know if you've seen yeah. it in recent years, but it's a very I've, angry movie. It is. I think Gremlins 2 is a little more the, the absurd kind of installment I oh think. yeah the first one too. is a little yeah uh Derek saying uh was seeing commander o'brien from star trek and hodor from game of thrones distracting to you because when i saw the trailer i was like really these guys are in this yeah i mean i yeah i think i said out loud or certainly put in my notes when i saw uh you know uh christian nairn i think nairn yeah. the actor uh, i'm like hodor uh, but also there's and I, I wish i got a screen capture of this but i didn't but uh when they go to the the pub there's a guy in there that looks like jrr martin too uh one of the one of the locals uh oh. seamus i think it was his name or something anyway uh so it's like oh jr martin's in here as well oh um, george rr R. martin yeah or yeah yeah george rr R. martin sorry yeah uh, uh that's what he's doing instead of writing the final books Right, right, exactly. He's he's acting. He's acting. Uh, um, I got my I got my authors confused, but yeah, George R. R. Martin. Uh, and, but yeah, then Cole Meany, uh, Daddy Whitten, I, uh, you know, was uh, in Star Trek: Next Generation. So, um, but yeah, the family. Yeah, they, not not a fan, not a fan at all. Of the Whalen family in this film. No, there, there's a particularly disgusting scene that I'm not going to bother describing, but with one of them is sitting on a toilet and starts just going through Jamie and Maya's stuff. Yes. And it's just gross. It's yeah. just, just, just the worst, just the worst. Yeah. And yeah, that again, I, I, they were a little too, I guess, again, if you wanted to make them despicable, then it worked. Um, but man, I, I particularly hated the, 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 two, the brother and sister, one of them who's played by uh, one of the characters name is Ashlyn. But she was played by oh, Jamie I don't remember her Lee name. O'Donnell. Yeah, from I, Dairy Girls. Yeah. And she's really funny in Dairy Girls. But I just wanted to put her and her brother in a cannon and fire them into the ocean. I again I I can't stand that, you know, we are we are strong and proud because of our birthright bullshit when actually we're lazy pikers, because I knew too many of those people growing up who mm-hmm. just again were like, well, you know, I'm a man's man because I'm from this place and I love this place. Do you do anything to enrich this place? No, go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah so no i'm with you there uh well, i guess we're we're bringing it in for a landing here we've got about six minutes yeah. left joseph is there anything else you wanted to hit i i think i hit on everything that to me stood out overall again i enjoyed the film though it, it was it was a lot of fun i i did not find myself bored at any point in the film even despite some of the 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 kind of the tonal misses that it had yeah uh the only thing i the only other thing i wanted to mention was how much i liked the way they lit the back garden hmm. of Jamie and Maya's house, because that's the place where the real world butts up against the world of the Fardaric. And I mean, the, apparently the whole house was on a massive set. Hmm. So everything, everything, the house, the ex- interiors and exteriors were all on a set in, in England. Uh, whereas all the exteriors were Ireland, okay. but 
the house was a massive set, so they were able to kind of light it in, you know, however they choose. And it really just everything the way that the pardon me, the way that was lit, everything popped in a different way. It made it seem more real than real. Mm-hmm. And I loved that way of what I felt was like an intentional way of delineating this place where the magical meets the mundane. And I, I really quite like that. And whenever, of course, the Fardarig were were around or were doing their thing, especially in the daytime, there were these little lens flares, these subtle little lens flares that, that kind of clued you into we in the mundane world or are we in the magical world? And I, mm-hmm. I did I appreciated that. Like when Neve at the beginning is when she's talking about you gotta feed these guys, there there's just a couple little spots of flare on her forehead. And so it's a sense of like they're around, but they're not there. You know, it, it, it was it was subtle, but I, I appreciated it. That's pretty much it for me. So I, I guess that sums up our thoughts on uh, John Wright's Unwelcome. And you can rent that pretty much anywhere you rent your films. It's on VOD right now. I'm sure it'll hit uh, streaming at some point, but, you know, five, six bucks out of your pocket. It's a great movie. It's about 107 minutes. So you got enough movie for your uh, enough movie for your buck. And I also recommend the same director's film, Grabbers. Mm-hmm. I, I watched that. It's on Prime in Canada. It is a shit ton of fun. It's an Irish horror comedy about a monster that arrives in a seaside village <laughs> who is allergic to alcohol. So everyone realizes <laughs> that in order to stay alive, they have to get pissed drunk. <laughs> That's great. It's a lot of fun. So thank you to everyone for hanging out with us tonight. Again, we love seeing you guys in the chat. You guys make it all worth it. Uh, thanks to everyone who's been downloading the show. We're actually charting in two countries. So thanks to everyone. And again, if you want to listen to the show and the audio of this will be out in two weeks time uh, and the audio only episode for freeze, which is a really fun uh, Lovecraftian inspired um, Arctic epic that just dropped. So you can check all that out on the weird together feed. Uh, Joseph, do you have any messages before we go out? Uh, real quick, well, Derek saying Grabbers is awesome, and then uh, yeah. Rin saying uh, Heart, and thanks, guys. We appreciate you all hanging out with us for sure. Uh, definitely appreciate that. Yes, sir. So, Joseph, where can everyone find you online? Well, you can find me on Twitter at J-O-K-O-M-O-13, Jokomo13. You can find me on YouTube at The Cardinal Rule if you happen to be interested in American football. Uh, and obviously here doing Weird Together with Brennan Store. All right. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as largely the truth. I'm also on Blue Sky, uh, which is still an invite only. But if you're on Blue Sky, come find me there. That is uh, said to be the Twitter killer. I don't think it will be, but hey, uh, it was free, so I got to go on. <laughs> I'm also on T2, which is yet another Twitter killer, which won't be. Uh, but again, if you are on either of those platforms, come find me. Otherwise, I'm on the Ghost Story Guys podcast wherever you get, well, wherever fine podcasts live, basically. I was thinking, oh, that's an edit. Nope, you're live. You can't do that. So (laughs) (laughs) finally, if you want to shoot us an email, you can find us at weirdtogethershow at gmail.com. That's weirdtogethershow at gmail.com. And if you have any comments, questions, we would love to uh, love to read them. We'll read them out on the show. We just had a message from our listener Sharona on the last show. And yeah. Oh, of course. One last thing. All music on this show is composed and performed by The Revenants. The Revenants are a project of the Boston-based musician Elliot Wilder. And you can find all their music streaming everywhere you get your tunes, courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings, which is a Ghost Story Guys house label. Until next time, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? Thanks, folks. Let me ride.